record right now. And I have to tell you that so I can avoid these book bags, they say. That's what Skype says right now. <laughs> Wait, what'd you say? So before, I don't know if you've ever used the recording feature on Skype, but when you click it, there's a little banner that pops up that says, to avoid any legal tags, like, let the person know that you're about to start recording. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, because the, the state laws vary, but in Arizona, for example, you can record somebody without their knowing. So, like, oh, I didn't realize it varied no. by state. Sketchy, 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 I know. Mm. But in California, it's illegal. I know it's illegal in Washington, too, because there was actually a bunch of cases of uh, human trafficking that had to get dismissed because the audio accidentally recorded sound. And so then that was considered inadmissible evidence. They had set up a sting in like a hotel for, and there, there were people that were coming to buy sex. And because the videos that they had set up were recording sound, then the evidence was considered inadmissible. Yeah, I'll send you the article about that, about evidence was considered inadmissible. Because the audio, the video recorded auto as well. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a weird Washington state law. It can be, yeah. Okay. Today, I'm very excited to have Maria Sopeda back on the podcast to talk about a uh, memoir, El País Bajo Mi Piel, that was written by Gio Conda Belli. And yeah, Maria, do you want to introduce yourself? And Well, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, if you want to introduce yourself, if there's anything new that you feel like you want to update people on. Um, hi, my name is Maria Jimenez Cepeda. And I don't Jimenez know. How did you decide the order of that hyphenation? Because Alejandro's last name was Jimenez, and then your last name was Cepeda, and then you decided to merge, but then you also had to choose who's first, who's second. Is that a politic? How did you decide that? So we both wanted it to be the same. And actually, in so he has the same last name now. So he also has Jimenez Cepeda. And actually, in my family's tradition, that is kind of what happens is that, like, my mom was... Flores Rubio, mm-hmm. and now she's Cepeda Flores. They just don't hyphenate it, but we decided to hyphenate here because most of the U.S. does not know how to recognize two last names. They get all confused and fuck it all up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of our thing of if we each keep our own and then add each other's as the second name, then we anticipated a lot of mix up with paperwork of like his being one way mine being another way but this way we both actually have the same and so it's just like an equal kind of standing and we both still retain both of our own last names especially I mean mine was a peta flores before but I mostly went by Zapeta. so then keeping him in a Zapeta was a really nice compromise for both of us and showing and like felt to us in a way that we have equal that we're an equal partnership mm-hmm. yeah I really like that I know he had to go through changing all of his name, too, and all of that annoying process and paperwork that that entails. So I'm like, now you I know what it's like. Good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but actually, I think people take those things for granted. They don't even know how long it takes, the paperwork, how much it costs. For real. For real. But yeah. Okay, so 
So I like starting with you with a check-in, asking how you are and what you've done recently for self-care. So I'm doing okay in this weird uncertainty of COVID-19. But as I actually told you earlier, it's actually been a little bit nice in being able to lean into my introverted tendencies and to lean away from my usual need to be productive and to feel like I can enjoy like time inside being leisurely and just taking my time without feeling a sense of FOMO or a sense of I'm not being productive enough. And so while I know it can be this kind of social distancing can be really negative, can have negative consequences for people's mental health. I think for me, it's actually had like the opposite and it's like kind of forced me to slow down and just enjoy the moment a little bit more than I normally would have. Actually, I totally vibe with that. I totally agree. And I think it makes sense where we met because we both went to Yale. So obviously we're high achieving people who who are dedicated to achieving and has pros and has its cons. <laughs> One of them is that I'm always tired. And I think I've really leaned into staying at home. And I think I've been able to do that because my partner, Joseph, has been super prepared and super on it. And he's been ordering and buying a bunch of stuff. And I've been buying stuff too, but we, like, I really feel like I have everything here. I haven't left since Friday morning, so I don't have anything that I need to go do or buy, but I'm going to need to get birth control like tomorrow or the next day. (laughs) Mm, Maybe you could look into one of the ones that deliver it to you now. There's a couple apps. I'll follow up with you later. Okay, yeah, because I'm like, wait, really? It's been a hassle to get my doctor on the phone, and so that's been its own hassle. If there's honestly, if it would get delivered, I'd be very happy, and I wouldn't need to leave the house for that. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you the apps, don't worry. Okay, perfect. Oh my god. I, I actually, I kind of feel the same way. I feel like my self care is really just been leaning into the introverts that I really am. I really love home life, and like when I have a clean house and I'm chilling and there's food in the fridge. I just couldn't be happier. And I just feel like it's, I know that it's a blessing to have all of those things. And I know that my parents didn't have those things always necessarily when they were growing up. And so I kind of felt very content lately. And also I've been with my mom recently for groceries. She said that her work has been slow because people have been canceling their their cleaning of their house because of their staying home, I guess. And it was nice to be able to support my mom in that way. And I always like want to support her more, but it was nice to be able to support her in this like really weird crisis moment. Yeah, it definitely is a privilege element of the fact that I am so okay because I have a job that's allowing me to work from home yeah. and where I still have a right. steady income and it's not now I'm just like, oh yeah. snap, my uh, source of income is gone. What do I do? So right. definitely right. grateful that I am in a position where the recommendations are beneficial to me right now instead of harmful. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, like for me, it's like the fun thing. We have snacks. We stocked up on our on beer and like here's the salt whiskey. <laughs> and and he, he said, this is so much better having money. And it, yeah, I just completely agree with that and then I'm so aware of the fact that this is fine and kind of nice and a break for me because we have money because 
I have a salary job, and I guess I have a job where I can work from wherever. Actually, litigation is like sending a lot of emails and being a lot of conference calls, honestly. <laughs> and it can be done from wherever, and that's a privilege. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so... Do you want to share any initial reactions to before we start? Yeah, one of the things that I was really surprised by actually was that it's not a linear in linear chronological order, but that it jumps back and forth between different periods of our life. And it's not even like, oh, here's present day and then here's future day and then again very fixes time. Every chapter is just in a very different time. And so sometimes it is a little bit hard to follow along. But mm-hmm. I want, but it is a really interesting t- stylistic choice, and I think I don't know. I don't know how I really feel about it, but it's interesting. What do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, I yeah I appreciate bringing that up because I felt the same way at first. I was gonna have a very harsh critique of this book. And I was gonna be like, so hard to read. It's not linear. She's talking about different time periods and different people in her life and they're not sufficiently explained and it's really confusing and like I have a busy life I check in and out of this book and I don't have time to piece it all together and I felt like in preparation of us doing the lit review I went back and I took notes and I looked up time periods and I kind of looked up historical stuff to better understand what she was talking about and I found it to make a lot more sense so I think I would just tell people that it's a book that requires, I think, well, especially for me. Yeah, my, fin- my, I don't know, my Spanish is pretty good. I'm able to communicate with my clients. But kind of the reality of migration is that a lot of my clients actually are educated up until middle school or primary school or in a good situation, high school. But usually it's just middle school, and so this is the Spanish that level that I, vocabulary level that I have is perfectly okay to carry in a conversation with them. But this book for me was a bit more difficult in terms of the Spanish vocabulary, and so for that reason, and because of the fact that she jumps in between years, it was it was hard for me to kind of understand. It was hard for me to get into it for a, for a bit. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely vocabulary. Yeah, my parents learned, I think, got to second grade or something. And so some of the vocabulary was just like, I don't know this in that way. So I did look a couple couple of the words, but I think for the most part, I was able to kind of make sense of like, I think that's what it is. Or I realized that it wasn't essential to the main point. So I'm just, I'm just going to keep going. But it is nice to kind of expand my vocabulary because I don't read as much Spanish books as I would like. But mm-hmm. I am surprised at it. I actually thought it would be harder to understand than it was. So I'm glad it wasn't completely overwhelming. Because it is. I think that's very admirable because do you speak Spanish for your job? No, not for my job. I speak to my, Sp- yeah. my parents and a lot of my aunts and uncles in Spanish very regularly. Yeah, see, I just, yeah. <laughs> I think that because of it, because so this is why I really resonated with Hintified because the kids or the, the younger generation speaking to their parents in English and the parents responding in Spanish is my life. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, and also even just in how I text my mom, even today, she was texting me in Spanish. I respond in English. I don't know. <laughs> that's just yeah. I don't. That's that's how we communicate. Well, actually, this brings me to a question that I had. This podcast, we read a Spanish language book. Should we record in Spanish or in English? I will say English, and mostly just because I don't know for whatever reason it is. If I know someone can speak really English really well, my default yeah. is to talk to them in English, and it's yeah. really hard cognitively to try to make the switch to Spanish. Whereas, like, if I know if I can tell someone's predominant language is Spanish, then like Spanish becomes my default. But like, I remember one time my siblings and I were like, we're going to try to talk to each other in Spanish for a whole day. And like, we lasted two hours. It felt too weird. We couldn't do it. But it <laughs> seems so natural to do it with our parents. Two that... hours. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't. We're like, this feels weird. Yeah. And right. it... I mean, yeah. But yeah, that happened to me too, because I, with my siblings, we only speak in English to each other. And that Spanish was my first language and kind of things like that were why now... English, I'm way better at. I think I have a way higher vocabulary. I'm a way better writer in English than Spanish. And I think it's partially because of stuff like that. Yeah. I know. I feel like we could try in Spanish, but we would both just be stumbling on our words all the time. Especially because this is a lit review, so. (laughs) But then I was thinking of, because it's a lit review, should it be bilingual? Because we'll feel more comfortable. We can bring in Spanish whenever it feels right. Okay, okay. So I wanted to start by talking about who Gioconda Belli is. She is the author of this memoir that we're talking about today, El País Bajo Mi Fiel, Memorias de Morigera. And she was the central figure of the Sandinista movement. She's Nicaragüense, although she's of Italian descent, which is why she has that name. I think it's just important to point out because I've been thinking, I, I think a lot about how the Latina figures that end up being exalted in the public discourse also end up having European connections. Like how Frida Kahlo is also like part German and how Tifana Bidi like really clearly has Italian roots that she can trace back to. And she just like looks like a white woman when you look at her picture. I think it's important to call it out because it's not a coincidence that it's those people that have been given the privilege of disability. And it's a it's because of their whiteness, their proximity to whiteness, or their literal whiteness, that their figures that we remember, right? There's countless people's stories from this time period that we'll never know. And I think it's also partially partially related to that, but it's also their, I know we'll go into it a little bit later, is her social class. And the fact that like she had the like education and well to then be able to publish an autobiography about herself. You sent me the keychain of Radio Cachimbona. That's the keychain I've been using. Yeah, oh my god, yeah. Wait, did you say what your self-care was? Making a puzzle. And it was really beautiful because it was designed by an activist woman of color. And so you see the puzzle itself is multicultural and everyone reading all these books. But then it's like a really funny, punny twist on the books. So oh, it's yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. It's 
been a nice part of me just like taking time to slow down and like, enjoy the uh, moment. That's amazing. So I wanted to start this discussion by talking about the quote that Jupan Lavelli starts the book with, or one of the quotes she starts the book with, where she says, La verdadera felicidad no consiste en tener todo cuanto se desea, sino desear cosas que no se tienen y en luchar por conseguirlas. And it's written by Julio Antonio Mea, who was a Cuban politician slash revolutionary. What do you think of this quote, and why do you think it's an adequate preface to the memoir? Because, I mean, I, I'm thinking about her in, in her social class, and she totally could have been just happy and complacent with what she had. But it also makes me think of a quote that she say, says later on, something along the lines of, like, what is it that makes people want to give up everything they have, including their lives, to fight for being, to fight for, like, liberties and rights of others, to fight for a cause greater than themselves? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's because of that thing of like wanting to fight for what you don't have that makes things revolution possible. That makes, especially when you are armed up against something like, especially the U S that has so much more resources and money and power than you, but ultimately you know that the kind of life that you're living is not, is not in line with your values and it's not what you want to ultimately have and that you want to fight for something greater and bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like she was sufficiently honest about her class position? I don't know. She definitely made reference to it and about how actually it was because of that that she was seen as less suspicious or she was be- seen yeah. as more helpful. She was able to help fundraise for them in other ways that she wouldn't have if she weren't in that class. But I don't know. Fundraise the- for the Sandinistas when there was the Somoza dictatorship. Yeah. But I don't know to what extent she fully goes into, like, I mean, you get a sense, you get a sense that it's, like, upper class, but I don't know to what extent. I don't know. For me, once it's up in that cast, it's hard for me to distinguish the levels, if I'm honest. Well, you know who it reminded me of, honestly, was the Latin American Yale students that we met. I I think that it would have been them, because she, she talks about how her mom went to school with Grace Kelly in Philadelphia. Uh, Okay. I'm sorry, you don't just, you're not, <laughs> if you're hanging out with Grace Kelly, and especially if you're Nicaraguan, you are of the upper socialite class. That's why you're hanging out with Grace Kelly. Yeah, definitely. You know, that being said, I think that her memoir is valuable to read because she was a woman and she was, she was a, she was a Wednesday woman who was a central figure in the revolution. And one of the things that she starts the book with is dos cosas que yo no decidí, decidieron mi vida, el país donde nací y el sexo con que vine al mundo. So I wanted to ask you how those two things affected her life. I was really like I mean what is it that's like the first line or something and it's just like yeah, for me it's that the very first line yeah it was like the very first line and that to be hooked me and it's just like, oh snap it's different because yeah I think especially through the lens which she viewed femininity not like as this kind of really not in as an oppression of any sorts of anything it was like super empowering mm-hmm. and I think she was the role that she played in 
the revolution and in her life really was decided by those two things. And I think it's a theme that she threads throughout the rest of the novel in ways that she embraces and leans into it in the ways that she challenges and pushes back on it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, yeah, I really felt like it was an apt way to start the book because the Nicaraguan dictatorship really structured her life. That was like her life cause and her life goal. And like to have grown up in Nicaragua, that, that was so critical and life-defining for her. She ended up fighting the Nicaraguan government her whole life. And I resonated so much with a lot of what she talked about, about being a woman and how that played out in her life, how she, tr- she found freedom at the age of 18 through marriage. And to be honest, there's a parallel, I think, for me and I think for you, too, of being 18 and trying to find freedom through college. That was how I found that. And I think I like very much related to this very strict household that can find you because you're a woman, solely because you're a woman. And just as soon as you can, trying to figure out a way to leave so that you can develop as your own independent person. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It was also really interesting and empowering, though, how her mom viewed like femininity, not as the thing that you were first with, but this is God's greatest blessing to be a woman and to be able to procreate in these ways instead of, oh, you're now like really vulnerable and now you have to do all these things. And it was really nice to see both her mom's view of like really elevating femininity to like divinity almost and to be able to embrace that role. Yeah, that was really nice. Did you follow her time in Cuba? No, I don't think I got that far. Okay. Oh, well, so I think that she talks about it kind of early on-ish. Oh, that first, that first chapter, she's in Cuba. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Well, see, honestly, one of the things, that's one of the things I don't like about this book, <laughs> that I think it's, it's hard to follow. Because this is what I'm saying. I was also, I was also, it's very confusing that you know her as a Nicaraguan revolutionary and, the, and she starts off by talking about her time in Cuba. Oh, you're right. I totally forgot. Yeah. And so she says, and, and she, she calls this chapter, underneath each chapter, she kind of summarizes what the essence of the chapter was about. And for this one, she says, Donde dar inicio con olor a pólvora esas remodaciones. Which to me is like, it's like these are the start of her memory. And it's really clearly mm-hmm. super important to her life. And so I just wanted to ask you why you thought that that her time in Cuba was so important and why her memories would start there too. Yeah, I'm not sure because I, yeah, I guess I didn't think about that chapter so much. I think I remember like the beginning lines and then I just kind of moved on to the rest of the story. Yeah, uh, so in this chapter, that's also where she talks about her ambivalent relationship to guns. Mm. So she's in Cuba, right? And on this page, she's talking about how she would have felt ashamed to admit how much she hated to shoot. And she says that her body completely rejected the gun. And that she says, So she just, and, but at the same time, she was a part of the Sandinista movement that was advocating for armed struggle. And so I wanted to ask you what your position is on that violence versus nonviolence, controversial topics, people's expectations of MLK. 
So yeah, it's really, it is really difficult. Cause on the one hand, I'm like, I mean, I personally don't own a gun or anything and that's not the kind of uh, trajectory I see for my life. But on the same hand, I, I could imagine the consequences that arise if no one had guns, if the government itself isn't demilitarized and if the police itself right. could happen there. Yeah. Well, I think I normally would fall more in the pacifist lines considering like their situation and that like, the U.S. was like introducing, you know, supplying the Contra with a ton of arms. It would be really silly to think that they could win this revolution without that. And I know for the most part, she talks about her involvement and how she was able to contribute without needing to shoot mm-hmm. like the ways that she's able to ma- navigate spaces mm-hmm. that are really critical in a lot of other ways mm-hmm. but I still think that I mean I haven't done anything but it's like, I still haven't gone to like any like, shooting classes or anything but that still seems like in this time of revolution that at least knowing how to shoot a gun would serve a really important purpose yeah and I know at least one person that she did I've got a gun but I think that's something that people are thinking about in this time of pandemic. I'm very comfortable with it. I have shot a gun. It was fun, but I think it's different when you're not in a fun situation. Yeah. Yeah. So but she, she brings it up again later too, I think, and in tying it with masculinity. And that like she didn't oh, understand she, she doesn't understand men's obsession with guns and how it, it deactivates so much. Like, and not just, like, the utility and purpose of it, but there's something about guns and shooting that she loves, and she's like, I don't understand. Yeah, I appreciated that she shared that, because I think that it's an important perspective to shed light on within the says, especially now, during this 2020 election, where Sanders' support of the says being vilified, also, just to have a historically accurate record of how people felt about it, because I think it's just such a complicated issue. Yeah, yeah. So. Yukuna talks about being 10 years old and celebrating Fidel's triumph, which happened in 1959. And... That makes wonder whether or not her parents were political. And it's kind of this thing that we've been talking about already. Like how much did she reveal about her social class and how much did she really reflect on her own positionality? Because she talks about the bourgeoisie class in general, but I felt like there were only a few instances where she talked about her parents in particular. Like when she talked about how with Fidel, her mom was really outraged because he was an atheist and she clutched her rosary when she found out from page 19. But then I don't recall her talking about what her mom's politics were. And then I wondered, was that implied? Was it super obvious that if she was upset about the religion, that she was upset about the communism as well? Because those things are thought to be interlinked. If you're an atheist, you're communist you hate God, or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, like we talked about how her parents were obviously bougie, like her mom hung out with Grace Kelly. So, I don't know what, just to bring up her parents again, whether it's whether or not she did a good job of talking about that. 
No, she really didn't. And so I don't know to what extent that they were political. I do remember having conversations about her, her friends and her friend group, whatever, and how they wouldn't even talk about this, the Sandinistas because then like, talking about them, it was just then you are making it real. Whereas like this, it was felt almost like taboo to talk about it and that this was happening. And it's interesting because I think it's one of two things. Like She could, in some ways, strikes me as maybe was down with it in theory but when it came to practice was like a little bit but I don't know that that was necessarily her case but I could see that being with a lot of other people that were in her social circle whereas instead I wonder if it was because they were a little bit more left that they kind of or because they had so much wealth they also had a lot more to lose in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. especially if like communism is all about redistributing wealth and Mm-hmm. She and the people in her social circle had a lot of wealth to distribute. So I'm assuming that her family wasn't necessarily in line with her politics. Yeah, I think we can assume she was a class traitor. Yeah, maybe. I just, I just thought it was interesting that she didn't condemn her parents more, like condemn her family members more or condemn her friends more that she was around. But I did think about that in just in a bi- an autobiography in general. There is so much that could be said about your yeah. life that there are so many different kind of perspectives or stories that you could highlight and having to choose how much of your lifetime and all of these different perspectives that you could choose. How do you choose what is the aspects that you want to focus on and tell? And so it doesn't seem surprising to me that she didn't necessarily talk about her parents because the focus here is more on her involvement on the revolution versus a social critique of the of the structure of society in general, which she comments on a little yeah. bit, but that she doesn't make that the focus of her autobiography. Yeah, I guess I just it just brings me pause because I feel like in this weird 2020 space of professionalized social justice jobs, I really want people to talk about where they come from and why they approach this work. And Mm. I felt like that was lacking in her own critique and maybe that's anachronistic and not appropriate because she was one of the very few people who were very wealthy and rebelling and nonprofits didn't exist at the time, and she did see herself as a class trader, and she was trying to live a double life and be convincing about it. I'm not sure she didn't get into that, so it's hard to know. Yeah, I'm sure she had her critiques about it, but it just wasn't the focus of this book. Cause it's also hard. You wanna. I don't know. I'm thinking of what I want to really go off on my family in any type of way. Like, I would never. Like, I could critique things, like, generally without, like, ever calling out my family specifically. I know that that's true, but I, yeah. I guess I just feel a particular kind of way about wealthy people. I think that's what it is, ultimately. But no, but also, but I feel like I've publicly talked about how, like, oh, my mom is anti-black. Like, I feel like I publicly talk about that on the podcast, so... Yeah, that's yeah, true. I, just, I do expect it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. You know, maybe people weren't talking about calling your family in in 1970. I don't know. I don't know what was happening. <laughs> but 
I felt I wanted her to do that more. Mm. Yeah, no, I get that. I do. I understand that she lived very complex life. It's just this book is very long, right? It's like 400 pages. 420. 420. Well, some of it is extra. Yeah. Well, some of it is extra context and stuff. But no, you're right. 421 pages. Oh no, some of that. Yeah, it's a brief history. So it actually ends on like 411 14. pages. Still, wow, 400 pages about one person's life. There's a lot of detail in this book. And so I, I totally understand her not being able to fit every particular thing in because she wrote 400 pages and didn't talk about her specific parental politics. So I understand why she had to cut certain stuff out. And I understand perhaps if she had to cut her pants. It's interesting though, because when you talk about it, it kind of reminds me of the opposite trend that we're seeing now. And especially with what you were saying, professionalized social justice warriors, especially who are white wealthy people and starting off with a statement of privilege or being like, we are white wealthy people talking about this thing and we acknowledge our privileges. Mm -hmm. And the just interesting dynamics around it oh okay cool you're acknowledging your positionality in these spaces but also sometimes it feels performative mm-hmm. I don't know it just makes me think about that yeah no I, yeah I definitely agree uh I remember somebody critique somebody's supposed calling out of their privileges like this person was like I am white and that brings a lot of privileges and the person was like well it's obvious they're white but are they going to talk about their class privilege, their job? Are they salaried? Are they an hourly worker? You know, are they queer? Are they disabled? Like, are there things we can't see that inform how they move in the world? And it's incredibly basic to just be like, this is my race. And I have mm-hmm. like, okay, well, that's like the first step. But also, what are your other things that you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. One theme that I wanted to talk about that came out in her memoir is U.S. imperialism. <laughs> so the Samosa dictatorship was happening, occurred for decades and decades because, and because of support from the U.S. So President Roosevelt said Samosa's quote, a son of a bitch, but he is our son of a bitch. And the person that he was referencing was the founder of the Samosa dynasty. And that person was educated in the United States, actually at West Point. And just kind of wanted to side note that this is a historical trend. U.S. educated individuals, wealthy Latin Americans who study at military schools in particular, West Point School of the Americas then end up importing U.S. forms and methods of oppression to Latin America, and the U.S. like literally controlled the Nicaraguan election, just literally ensured that Samosa would stay in power. And I want to recognize that also because Nicaraguans are a huge proportion of the people that were fleeing in the past few years because of ongoing political dictatorship. And I want every white person to know that 
it was U.S. intervention that created this crisis in the first place. Trump's discourse of shithole countries is so offensive because it's literally the U.S. that intervened and rigged these economies to be disastrous. Yeah, so on a related but kind of side note, I actually really loved that she spent a considerable amount of time talking about the type of education that they would do, that the Sandinistas would do, and the type of reading that they would do, especially yes. how the Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano was a key book that like really informed their thinking and their approach. So it wasn't like, oh, we don't like this this government, we're gonna take it down. It was like really understanding like the historical context of why aren't we independent? Why aren't our people thriving? Right. Why are things the way that they are? And really educating themselves on like, history and the grounding of what has been stripped from us and like what are approaches that we could take to like, regain our autonomy and understanding that what they were experiencing wasn't just uh, in Nicaragua, but it was throughout all of Latin America and, and caused by U- U.S. imperialism. And I think Open Reigns of Latin America is one of those books that will just sit with me forever of thinking of what would the alternative have been if all of these countries that we're seeing that are real consequences of U.S. imperialism, what would they have been like if they would have like been able to not only choose their own leaders, but the leaders that they did choose, like if they were not killed by the U.S., if those kind of measures that they practices and policies that they put in place to uplift the entire country, what if those were actually left alone to live to see the fruition of it? Like, I know one of the big parts, uh, or one of the big, I guess, campaigns that came out of the Sandinista movement was literacy and like, making sure that all of the everyone in Nicaragua was literate because they used to face huge rates of literacy. And like, the, you, even in the short time of span that they had to be able to do that freely, they saw huge gains in literacy and like in economic opportunity before then. U.S. imperialism intervened again and then just cut all of those gains that they had made really short. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the Black Panthers, honestly, because the Black Panthers, I think, have also gotten historically a bad rap. Like, I remember my my Yale College roommate was really upset that our American Studies professor had talked about the Black Panthers in a favorable light. She's like, oh my God, my dad told me the Black Panthers were terrorists. And that's also how people think about the Sandinistas, you know, they, you know what I mean? And that's why people have been trying to demonize Bernie for support of the Sandinistas. And it's important to recognize all the ways in which actually the Sandinistas were stepping in to fill the gaps the government was not fulfilling. And that they weren't terrorists. So that, you know, I think this is a very complicated history. And I want to be clear that the Sandinista party that exists today and the Sandinista government that Nicaraguan folks are now fleeing and have been fleeing for the past few years is really different than what we're talking about historically right now. But at the time, you know, this was a really powerful movement and it was doing good things. Yeah, definitely. more about U.S. intervention into Nicaragua because I didn't realize the extent to which 
the U.S. was involved in Nicaragua until I did more research in reading this book. So in the early 1900s, the U.S. occupied, literally occupied with army soldiers Nicaragua for 13 years. And then in 1926, somebody named Chamorro won the presidency, but the U.S. refused to recognize his presidency. And Chamorro was apparently somebody that Gioconda met through her various political adventures. On Okay, so I want to get your thoughts on this. Okay, on page 29, are you looking at it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so she says, Hamas podría ver de frente mi propia cara. And don't you think that was kind of a high thought? <laughs> yes. Right? She's literally just being like, whoa, I'm never going to be able to do the front of my face from somebody else's perspective because I am me. Mm-hmm. I was like, Girl, you smoking marijuana. <laughs> How old was she when she said that? She is page 29. And at that point, she was living in Nicaragua. It was at 1952. Let's see. When was she born? She was 14 when she wrote that. I also just really <laughs> thought of it as a kind of self-awareness of a limitation yeah. of oneself. And can do all the things that you you can do a whole bunch mm-hmm. of things, but that is one of the things that you will never be able to do. Feels like yeah, I don't know. Like she's mm-hmm. just I think through the whole book demonstrates a really intense kind of sense of self awareness. Yeah, I felt that too. But that was really funny. I, I feel that. I feel that. I, I do. I do agree, and I think that that is why her memoir is four hundred pages because she thinks about a lot of shit. It really does. She identifies as a bruja. Do you identify as a bruja? I do. Actually, mm-hmm. I didn't used to, but recently, but only because now I've had two dreams of friends being pregnant, and then I told them my dreams, and then it turns out and to they be were true. like, "Bitch, I'm pregnant." Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, wow. and I think that's a very recent development because I think for the long, for the longest time, I used to think of, you know, science as the ultimate truth, and it definitely took a lot of learning to be like, mm, a lot of science is biased or like intentionally racist or like not okay. And it's really, like, yeah, been, like any other discipline is guessing, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, obviously, some science more than just all these fake news articles that are out there. Yeah. Just like, so it's like, vaccinated. Right? Or people be like, oh, drink water with baking soda. That's going to help prevent coronavirus. And it's like, bitch, it's not. No, don't do that. Saying that, nobody listens to that. I know. But there is elements of like intuition that I think I really didn't understand or believe or tap into. But it's something that I've really been learning to really listen to and tap into. And it is a really interesting thing. And it reminds me back. It reminds me to bring back myself back to our roots of like, there is this indigenous set of knowing and indigenous ways of knowledge that we have been taught to set aside. And so how do we reconcile the and that some of these things are true and science can be helpful? But yeah, the ways that she predicted these earthquakes twice. Right. And both times was seen as her family was skeptical. Yeah, okay, you have this 
intuition. You have this premonition. Nothing's going to happen. But the fact that she was both time, right both times is like, I mean, we could easily dismiss of, okay, yeah, she just said she was doing this. So who knows how many other times like, she thought things like this that weren't true. But right. I think it is that some people are more gifted than others and some people might be gifted with this a lot. And I don't think I can really tell the future in any sort of ways. And it just happens to be that with these two cases of pregnancy, it's been right way of interconnected knowing more that, you know, can't be backed up by science, but is still can be real and meaningful in its own ways. And like, is maybe tapping into other forms of knowing and knowledge that yeah. we didn't have the full understanding to be able to explain. Or just that can't be explained at all. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And I really appreciate that you identify as a bruja and I completely believe in like feminine intuition in feminine forms of knowing because I do think that we inherit the knowledge that the women before us have recorded. Yeah. I think there is, I think I used to dismiss these kinds of I think it did definitely used to believe in just science and all of these homeopathic remedies. Yeah. I used to dismiss of, oh my gosh, like y'all are being nonsense. But I think it, because in some ways I used to see people being like selling each other random things and be like, oh, this is going to make you find love or whatever. And so in some ways I saw that as very opportunistic and trying to make a profit yeah. off of other people's insecurities. But I realized that there is this kind of in-between of like, like there are other there are other options and there is something that we can't explain that is transmitted through generation through generation. And I mean, it's interesting too, and seeing how things like epigenetics, like that in itself is true. Just like genetically speaking, we carry the trauma of our ancestors. Yeah. Why can't we carry the knowledge and the spirit and the essence of our ancestors? Right. Exactly. No. Yeah. And Apparently, people say that the knowledge of our ancestors is kept in our hippocampus, and I just think that that makes so much sense, and that's why people do ayahuasca trips, because it taps into the hippocampus, and that's how you can try and contact your ancestors. Mm. Interesting. Beta trip to Peru. (laughs) Not with you. Yes. Honestly, that would be amazing after every bitch has gone to therapy. And then we're like, let's go to Peru. Let's talk to our ancestors, bitch. That'd be really powerful. I don't know. I'd be down. I know. There's something scary of you. It's helpful for people that reach rock bottom because they got nothing else to lose. But if you're not there, then that can be really scary. Because you think you might connect with your Spaniard ancestors and die and like cry. I don't know. But that is interesting. You talk about our ancestors. You're right. We talk about our ancestors in this really positive way, but it's just for most Latinos, that also includes a lot of Spaniards and a lot of who knows what. And so we're obviously still exhibiting those symptoms, but those aren't the things I want to tap into. Like not e- yeah, and not even just Spaniards, also indigenous folks that betrayed their own people. I mean, yeah. I don't like to think about that, though. <laughs> 
I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot living in Arizona because so many of the border patrol are brown Latinx people. So many of the prison guards mm-hmm. that I meet are brown Latinx people. So many of the ICE officials, so many of the private detention center guards that I meet are Latinx people. And their excuse is, well, I just need to feed my family, blah, 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 blah. Mm. So I think about that a lot living here. And then I also moved here. And honestly, my first supervisor was a Latina woman who's toxic as fuck. <laughs> and, it, and, it was, and it really it made me so sad because it made me realize really the skin folk, all skin folk and kin folk. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for me to realize that because leaving our Yale Latinx like us a community, I kind of, I kind of expected every Latinx person to be on the same page because so many of us were on the same page, and I thought that other people in our community would be on the same page, and actually they're not on the same fucking page, and I don't even know where these people are coming from, but a lot of them do not give a fuck about Latinx solidarity. They don't see themselves as Latinx. You know what I mean? That's a very new concept also. Yeah. Anyways, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely interesting because I think there, I think that's where the concept of intersectionality really comes into place. Because if you are POC, and wealthy, that your wealth is able to buffer a lot of the effects that you might otherwise experience in your Latinidad. But if you, mm-hmm. and if you are white passing and Latinx, even if you are these other classes, that might still buffer you, your effects, the effects that you might see in your Latinidad. And so like, it really depends because I also Geography see like matters of, too. Yeah, geography matters too. Like, what places are really vilified? I'm sure I see... I think you've talked about that in Arizona, experienced a lot more discrimination than you ever did in the Bay Area, you know? Yeah, I really, no, yeah, I really do. And somebody, so, okay, I'm going to tell a story. So somebody recently on their Insta story, what there, there's somebody who is a brown Mexican Latinx person on their story posted about how Latinxes, quote-unquote, have negated their African origins and that they get, quote, treated like Black by their own people, treated as Black by their own people. And I messaged being like, this erases Afro-Mexicans because Black people in Mexico get treated as Black people in Mexico. I don't know why you're trying to compare your experience as a brown-skinned person to somebody else in Mexico who's Black, because they experience their own anti-Blackness. And you really can't merge the two. Yeah. I think it's all just complicated, especially when you bring in that internalized racism. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Latinx communities and I see that like especially in older generations when they were taught that if they wanted to succeed in the U.S. they had to assimilate mm-hmm. and so like they stripped a lot of like their cultural identity in order to make life better for their children and so it's just I understand and see that and there is so many layers of complexities especially when you see sometimes like well you see both 
you see Latinx being treated as both being otherized as POC and thus discriminated, but then also Latinx being appealing to whiteness and being like, well, we are not black, therefore we are white, therefore we should be exempt from all these discriminations. And you see both of those spectrums all over the place. And there is no clear and easy answer, and every person's experience is different. And, you know, it's just a whole complicated ass mess. <laughs> I think everyone's experience is different, but we need to recognize that consistently around the gro- globe, Latin people have an easier time than darker skin people. Oh, for sure. Darker skin people have an easier time than people who are Black. Yeah. And that's kind of what I wanted to emphasize with my friends. I get that you're brown, but being brown is not black. Yeah. Well, except if, for instance, this is interesting because here's where, like, color... Girl, I'm listening. I'm listening. Where colorism comes into play. And whereas I had a family member who was dating a Mexican who was dark and was constantly being, why are you dating him? He's so dark. And like was constantly, yeah, being told, oh, really? You couldn't do better? Whereas I had another family member who was dating a black person who was lighter skinned and be like, constantly, or good thing they're not black. And where I think, if anything, that family member that was dating a lighter skinned black person got a much better time than the other Latino member that was dating a dark Mexican. Right. I mean, it kind of just really puts it into clarity. It just makes it very clear that it's not about quote unquote culture. It's about skin tone. Right. Because a lot of people say, oh, no, I think I've heard a comment saying, oh, no, it's not racism. It's just that I want somebody who understands Mexican culture <laughs> and there's no black Mexican. So like, what I'm saying is that like, I want somebody who looks a certain way, has a certain skin tone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So... Yolanda Benny talks about the 1972 really terrible earthquake where her house lanzaba pedazos por el aire. And she said that afterwards, la ciudad entera se ahogaba en dolores y nostalgia. This is on page 34. And she also said that the National Guard pillaged in the wake of the earthquake, which I think is an example of a complete and total government breakdown. I think we're actually very close to. So I wanted to ask you how you reacted when you heard about that and the government's reaction to it. Well, I think when I was reading it, I was really thinking about, because I think she talks about first the Santa Monica earthquake and then this mm-hmm. earthquake, or am I mistaking? Is it the other way around? So, she, yeah, she survived the Santa Monica earthquake, and then she also talked about her 1972 earthquake in Okinawa. So I think about that and how the experiences were, I mean, I don't know if the magnitude was the same, but in Nicaragua, the the earthquake really destroyed their city. It really destroyed everything. Like It really shook their sense of self. And so when she experienced it in Santa Monica again, she was expecting it to be the same and was really astonished at how kind of everything returned to normalcy right away and how how much of a difficult time she had accepting that because... In her mind, she was thinking that everything was going to be ravaged in the same way and that everything was going to be changed. And she was like, oh, my house is still in place. Oh, the neighbors are calm. Oh, they're all returning and not expecting this like, series of quakes that happen afterwards. 
And so it was definitely interesting to think about both just mm-hmm. the difference in quality of construction of homes and what was like available to them. And also the fact that she mentioned in the U.S. people trusted the government to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, that was not mm-hmm. the case in Nicaragua whatsoever. Mm. I know. And I really appreciate that perspective, honestly. And I really appreciate that my parents have that perspective, too. And when I think about it, I think that that's how and why I was able to so easily come into abolitionist politics. Because, yeah, my dad is a very problematic person, but also he fought in the Guerrilla because he believed in the ability of every worker to have a living wage. And that is something that even though I've gained social mobility is something that I still think about for everybody in my family that wasn't able to gain that because I know that they deserve that because of their own humanity. And just wanted to ask what you think about that. About what specifically? About the ability of governments to provide post-natural disasters like earthquakes. Yeah, it definitely is this interesting phenomenon that you, I guess, I don't know what my parents' experience have been like in Mexico and maybe because kind of really traumatizing things have happened maybe before their times or because they were in such a small remote pueblo, they kind of were in some ways isolated from a lot of things that were were happening. Mm -hmm. But I know that I, that there is this tendency of people that tend to do better off with um, especially police enforcement to have a fit bigger trust in it and for people mm-hmm. that are constantly criminalized by it no 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 I don't trust y'all um and I know even myself that I've never really had to deal police and even when there has been encounters it's generally been favorable like I've mm-hmm. definitely had to do a rethinking of instead of like, in whatever spaces that I'm in if there ever is a situation where I my default would be to think of oh let's call the police they can help I have to like, take the time to pause and reassess and think of actually what is the position of whoever I'm trying to help? Would they be more likely to be harmed or helped by the police? If they're more likely to be harmed, what are other alternatives? And really making that, that definitely has been a process for me in thinking that the police is not the default for situations of even space situations where you think that the police would be most helpful, but it's just like, oh, actually, no, this is this police interaction could actually be really damaging and more harmful to them because maybe they are a person of color, maybe because they are an immigrant or undocumented or whatever reason and having to take all that context into consideration and to effect. And so thinking even in the U.S. where government is generally more helpful for a lot of people thinking and being conscious of the fact that that is not true for everyone and having to think of what are alternative solutions for the people that that is not the case for. Yeah. I think that it's really important for us as two light-skinned Latina women who have benefited from educational privilege and who actually have the top tier of educational privilege because we went to Yale and because I have a master's degree or whatever it was called, the JD. And and you're also, wait, you did graduate and now you're in city government. Yeah, I got a master's in public administration. And now you have a master's in public administration and you're working in Seattle city government. County government. And wait, what's the county then? King County. Tacoma. Oh no. 
<laughs> no, so you're thinking of Tacoma because that's where the detention center is. <laughs> yeah, that's all I know about places. That's a, that's a different county. I'm monitoring your immigration detention center switches. I know. Good, good. You should be. I don't even want to get into that because that stresses me out. But separate conversation. I know, but I do want to say during this episode recording that hashtag free Alejandra, we need to call Cesar Topete, whose phone number is in multiple graphics on the at Radio Cachibona Instagram page and we need to put pressure on him and the acting ICE office field director to release Alejandra Alorreyes, who is a Mexican trans asylum seeking woman who needs to be released yesterday, honestly, but we'll, we'll be okay if she gets released tomorrow because it's not in ASAP. Yeah. We're going to go back to talking about El País Bajo Mi Fiel. So she, she, one of her husbands named Carlos, who she calls Charlie, and she met him while he was working for NPR. And I feel like she just has had this fabulous life that I love and also like want to have. Also, was his name Charlie and she called him Carlos? Or was his name Carlos and she called him Charlie? Wait, critical question. I always thought his name was Carlos and then she named him Charlie. And honestly, the reason, the only reason I thought that is because there's many people named Carlos in my family. And there's been a few people who have been nicknamed Charlie as a joke. Mm. So, I just kind of, so I kind of accepted that that was the thing, but I wasn't sure. Wait, what do you think? Why? What's the tea here? No, I was wondering, because I think he's of Italian descent, too. So I don't actually know what his name is. Oh, so he's Nicaraguense, but he's of Italian descent, right? He's Nicaraguense, but he's of Italian descent, too, right? I don't know if he's Nicaraguense, but he is of Italian descent. Okay. Right, that's why they connected. Yes. Yeah. Because that was really why I was willing to talk about how it is these... Latin American figures who have ties to Europe that end up being very visible to us. Yeah. And it's not coincidence. Yeah. No, I definitely thought about, I think about him most in the period, it was later, a little bit later on in the book where she talks about how she was discouraged from seeing him because they thought that she would accidentally reveal Sandinista plans because she was in love with him and he was a reporter. Yeah. And how at first she kind of like accepted that fate and it was her cousin that was just like, what are you talking about? You as a feminist are going to tell me that you were going to accept the fact that these men will distrust you because of that, even though you have dedicated so many of your years of your life working towards this movement. You know, at that, that point, how many years had she dedicated? I don't know exactly. Time? But I know that I think they they said to you that so many of the men who were still working for the Southeast movements were sleeping with women right. from the U.S. And like that was not seen as anything. So just like, calling out the double standard in that. And it was actually her cousin then that was just like, no, 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 don't settle for this. Go and fight for your right to have both your man. Yeah. It's your man, sis. <laughs> I know, right? And so thinking about that. And then the other side, too, that then the 
even after they were fined, then he got pushed back from the U.S. because they were publishing propaganda against the Sandinista movement. And because he was, I guess, more neutral, maybe even a little bit favorable, they saw it as like super favorable to the Sandinistas. And then they were accusing him of being paid by the Sandinistas to paint this like more positive portrait of them. I know. I just kind of think this whole thing really signals the importance of independent media. Right, because the Washington Post and New York Times are entities that we know historically end up in these political broils. But Radio Cachimbona, Salt Independent, I'm here talking <laughs> to my authority sister, and it's unbiased, <laughs> independent, critical, sharp analysis. Hire me. <laughs> For real, though, the live show is the first time I got paid $300. A. The next thing I want to talk about is on page 39. She says that going to the, to the U.S., a me el aislamiento me tenía totalmente desconcertada. My mom felt the exact same way. She said that was the hardest part about moving to the U.S. was that she didn't feel like a neighborly bond to the people around her because she felt like before it was kind of like anybody on your block could just walk up knock on your door, say hello, say what's up, just kind of ask to hang out. It's like, hey, that was like totally normal. Mm-hmm. And she never experienced that in the U.S. And she found that so weird and so isolating. So I wanted to ask if you had, if your mom described a similar experience to you. I don't think my mom described that experience to me, but I know I felt a little bit like I don't think I ever really had neighbors that I became friends with in those ways and it makes me think of this term that someone came up with which was talking about we all live in collective isolation you know Mm. what do you mean we are all isolated like together and how in certain neighborhoods especially like in certain communities because there is maybe no infrastructure or community resources and a way to bring everyone together everyone is just living isolated together that makes sense. Yeah, but, and that, that feels like super relevant during COVID-19. Definitely. It also just makes me think about the fact of, I think we've talked about this before, of this kind of the trauma that results from living through whatever our parents have lived through, that the fact that they super buy into things, casos de la vida real, that like all they highlight is like these super traumatic stories that makes you think you can't trust anyone, that also prevents right. forming any kind of bonds that you otherwise otherwise maybe would have or if you even if you do there is still always I mean for maybe for better or for worse a sense of like caution around that and be like yeah I can be friends with this person but they are not part of my really close network of community they are not someone that I will ultimately rely on in an emergency which I know there is probably a good reason for that and can be helpful in terms of survival but I think it was also really damaging in terms of mental health and being able to build really meaningful and strong relationships. No I totally agree I think that trauma makes you form fucked up relationships and have sometimes a skewed perspective on other humans ability to help you and I think it's important to keep that in check if we're actually going to rely on each other in the way that we need to. Yeah. Definitely. 
One of the things that I thought was funny on page 39 was that Giovanna Belli said that the white people around her had a confidence and security that their lives were going to turn out okay and that she couldn't relate. And I felt like, yes, that's exactly it. Like the difference between white people and people of color. This confidence and security that you're going to live and be okay and survive these things. Survive COVID-19. Yeah. I think we talked about that earlier of how mm-hmm. the people here in the U.S. were like, or at least for the most part, people here in the U.S. tend to trust their government, but other communities really couldn't. Well, I guess what I felt like from her saying that was that the war trauma hits you and it stays with you. She was floored that people in the U.S. trusted their government, and that's also how I feel about it right now, 2020. Yeah. I think it's similar to what we talked about earlier, that there are certain people that trust their police because the mm-hmm. police have mm-hmm. only protected them, whereas mm-hmm. there's other people that don't trust police because the police have always been antagonistic towards them. Mm-hmm. I know, it's really awkward because recently there was it's like random old guy that came to the ACLU of Arizona office and was like, hey, I'm from the ACLU of New Mexico. Like, I wanted to work out of your office. Can I do that? And it was very lucky timing that at the t- I like happened to be on a call on speakerphone when he walked in and he realized he was interrupting a call. So he was like, oh, sorry. And he backed out and went to the hallway. And my boss was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, but... If you want to use our office, you have to contact, like, this person or office manager. Here's, here's their card with their contact information. And he was like, okay. And later we found out there was nobody from the ACLU New Mexico office that was trying to work out of Tucson. That was, like, a random who's doing who knows what, trying to be there. And we felt super unsafe and after that point they were just okay so like we're not going to list the ACLU Arizona address public because there's people who really disagree with ACLU of Arizona goals and they feel super strongly about it and that man was an example of that. Mm. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I know. Especially because they tell you is not even that leftist. It's like, wow, the people feel so strongly about the ACLU shit. <laughs> Imagine if they really understood what you're asking for. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> Regarding her first husband, she said happiness was an uncomfortable state for him. And I was like, ooh, because my ex was like this. And especially when he was like, he'd be hypnotized in front of the TV and he would say, we don't need to speak. I was like, oh. That's rough. That's my my ex right there. (laughs) wanted to ask how you reacted to that part of the book. I mean, I noticed that for myself whenever I want to have an escape from reality, that's when you will see me binge a TV show for like nonstop and like that is kind of like my way to be like, yeah, escaping reality for a bit. But it also made me think of kind of what we were talking about earlier that she left 
the house at 18 and got married as a way to escape the, the restrictions of being at home. And in a way, it was it was in some way escaping one set of restrictions to moving to another like household that had a different set of restrictions where she still wasn't free. She still wasn't there herself. It was now having to just be accountable to someone else. And I guess, thankfully for her, this was someone that didn't really notice her like, where she was or really, like, wasn't really like overprotective or wasn't really like, keeping track of who she was outside of the household. So... Kind of why it was so beneficial that she had a checked out husband. <laughs> it really was. That because he was just so checked out and just so focused on the TV and was so oblivious to everything... That likes you, and especially because being in the social class that she was, you know, she was able to make fake excuses for all these reasons to be out, and like she wasn't questioned about it, because he was just like, "I'm get, I have my TV, and you're probably fine, so you're good." I know it's kind of sad to think about, but he didn't really care. <laughs> no, but it also makes me think of you think that someone that maybe had everything in certain ways, because I'm assuming. But maybe wrongfully that he was maybe in the same like social status that he was. That you think that they would, I mean, it's like proof that like money doesn't buy happiness and that money isn't everything. So the fact that he still had who knows what going on, that he still still felt a need to escape his reality into something like the TV. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I assume that he's in the same social class, and it, I think it does exactly what you said. Of, just proving that money doesn't buy happiness. As corny as that sounds, it just really is true. I know. Even though Ariana Grande says, whoever thought, said money can't buy happiness just must not have enough. I heard that. I heard that also. <laughs> So we talked about this earlier. You mentioned it earlier that Duke will never really thought about her gender as an advantage. And she's always thought of herself as free because she was a woman. How do you understand that? Do you relate to that at all? Because I don't really. But I want to know how you reacted to it. I actually think I re- felt most strongly when she was comparing herself to her cousin that was maybe like super domestic in all these ways. And she was talking about like how she finally understood the like allure of femininity and be able to cook for other people and like to be like domestic in those ways. And I think I tend to think of it more of the fact that my main love language access servitude. So in me, the way I show love is mainly through like words of affirmation, but also in doing things for others. And the fact that doing things for others, for me, little cooking and cleaning. And so in thinking of, oh, there is a certain allure of femininity that tends to maybe show up in those ways. But also in the fact that she thought herself as free because she, in a lot of ways, rejected these like norms of what femininity should be. Like She knew what was expected of her. But she still understood her power in a lot of ways. And in some ways, I think of Audre Lorde's notion of like the erotic power of ways of like there is being a certain amount of like freedom, independence, and like power and being able to tap into that. And I think once she learned to like kind of push away in a lot of the certain domestic expectations of that and be able to tap into who she was and who she is and like what she felt as love 
that she was able to really tap into like, who she was. That's super beautiful, and I agree with all that, and I have nothing to say because it's so succinct and so perfect. So, I wanted to transition topics to when she talks about giving birth, which is kind of weird because neither of us have given birth, but we're here, we're trying it, we're talking about it. So, she talks about how when she was giving birth, she didn't feel young, she felt ancient, and she felt a part of a multiple corporeal female collective, and that was on page 48, if you want to look at what she was talking about. She said when she gave birth, she felt it was impossible that her child could have emerged from inside her. And she said that when she held her, she felt like she was unfolding herself. And even temporarily that it made up for her unsuccessful marriage. What were your reactions to her description of birthing a child? I think of it... I think of it... Actually... It's maybe this reminded me more of when she was talking about how she felt beautiful when she was during her wedding day until put like the gloves and veil on her and then she felt ridiculous like she was like a package being made all pretty to be gifted off and so I think about that in some ways like that there was a part of her that felt like really powerful and the ability to give birth but then being kind of forced into this idea of like their hood and like what it meant that she felt like she had to abide by these maybe outdated standards of what it meant to be a mother but that when she held her daughter she saw them the power of who she was and the fact that men can't procreate in that way they can't give birth and that when so when she was holding herself and was holding a daughter she felt like the power of herself to give birth into her daughter now you know like as much as those limitations were still there, she still ultimately saw those powers of being in her and be like, you know, she will, she will get this. And that from like what, it, yeah, again, like neither of us have children, but from what we've heard, it's just like that then children make up this like bond that transcends anything you could have ever expected, even from like your spouse. But how do you know, what do they need to transcend you both? I mean, I think it's different to them falling in love with someone and making their lives together than being able to create a life. And I think it's something about that fact of being able to create a life and knowing that they are independent in themselves. That can be really powerful. No matter what happens with you two, hopefully they will live on. They will be their own person and that, that's not something you can take away from them. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a lifelong thing for sure. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is whether you got annoyed stylistically by how sometimes there were paragraphs that were like page, a page long. There was just things that went on for too long without a break, without a paragraph. I don't think I really noticed that, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, that's great. So... <laughs> Perhaps you will be annoyed, perhaps you won't. You'll just have to read the book to find out. So one of the things that she did talk about, though, was that in 1967, 
There was a massive demonstration in Manawa in support of the candidacy of Aguado, and that was when Anastasia Somoza ordered the National Guard to attack the march. And that day, over 300 people were killed in a massacre. Chiaconda's brothers were present that day, but they ran away and were able to be saved. And reading that just made me so sad because I just realized how continuously Nicaragua has experienced violence. Yeah. I mean, this whole book, as I feel, I mean, in history, is filled with a whole bunch of field attempts to overthrow the Samatha Samosa dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks... I don't know. It makes me think of both the people's resilience and knowing like, what they wanted and that they wanted a better life and better opportunities for the people who were most being just ignored and left out from mm-hmm. that dictatorship that they continued to try this, even though there were multiple failed attempts. And also that the weird element of luck that comes into it too. Um, mm-hmm. When people were able to successfully escape these moments where theoretically everyone should have died. I mean, there was right. that, that, that one moment that was like broke my heart when she talked about how she was driving somewhere with was Marcos and that they basically could have died and they weirdly narrowly escaped it but then years later he was there with some other comrades and they then were just bulleted to death in that very same spot and talking about was it that it was maybe could have been his time to there because it but because it wasn't hers that he was able to escape death in that moment but that what did it mean that he died in that same place years later. I don't know that part really stuck with me. Yeah, I think it's just really tragic and it's super confusing to think about who died and who didn't and why not, because none of it makes sense. Because there's no logic to it, it's just violence. Yeah. It's like violence. Wow, y'all might be surprised to know that this whole discussion only emerged from the first 150 pages of this book. And actually, Marie and I are going to do part two of this at some point soon when we finish reading it. (laughs) I feel it's actually been a really interesting read. If it weren't an autobiography, she could have organized it chronologically and have it been a novel. And I would not have been able to tell that this was like actually based in history. Right. In the, right. Uh, in like how beautiful she tells the story, these stories. Yeah, I think it, like, for somebody who maybe doesn't like fiction, they'll enjoy this book. Or people that like historical fiction. Yeah, they'll enjoy it. Okay. Yay! Thank you so much to Thank you. Maria Sateva, my ace. Aww. A podcast friend. Aw. Yay. Okay, I'm going to stop recording right now. Bye. Say bye. Bye. <laughs>